1: the world, what a life, what a day, Saturday, August 7, 2021, a moment in time where bad acts of Donald Trump continue to reverberate. Yes, that big lie. How can we approach this critical time for the United States and the rule of law? We talk about it in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge with top-notch talent, like Ellie Honig, the top legal expert at CNN. We talk about so many things. This is a thrill. One former prosecutor to another. Dave Gunders, Our Troubadour, has a great song. It's about these hard times. And a lot of people are going through hard times. In Austin, I saw homelessness. I went there and wrote a column for the Colorado Sun. And it was a tremendous experience. And I'm glad I got active. And I saw Willie Nelson... Wait till you hear about that. Upcoming this week on YouTube, yes, we have a YouTube channel. I supply some visual. The visual is an interview I did on the streets of Denver. A beautiful young lady, homeless. And I spoke with her, and it will not be what you expect. We will have more of that next week in a preview with our troubadour song called These Hard Times. But this episode is titled Ellie Honig, and let's get to the star of the show right now in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
2: Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
3: Ellie Honig.
1: Ellie Honig, welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge.
3: Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, it's an honor to have you on. I watched you on CNN this morning making a very compelling case about the direction this country should go in when it comes to the big issues that we will get to. But, my gosh, I bet you've done a lot of podcasts and radio shows. Congratulations on your book, Hatchet Man. I enjoyed
3: it very much. Thank you. It's been a a busy stretch. I'm really glad you read it. Um, it's great hearing now from people who've read it and sort of their thoughts on it. And I will say it's it's great hearing from prosecutor, former prosecutors, former defense lawyers who, who really resonated with. But I think the most gratifying thing is just sort of normal folks, non-lawyers who, who really enjoyed it and, and um, understand that it's a book about really more than just Bill Barr.
1: Before he became the chief legal guru at CNN, Ellie Honig served 14 years as a prosecutor. Some of that in the esteemed Southern District of New York, and another big job in the state of New Jersey. I served 16 years as a prosecutor, and right away I got fascinated by the way you started your book with your first trial, and... (laughs) It's different than mine. Similar in some respects, as a state prosecutor, you know, we started with misdemeanors, lower level charges, Right. but you get thrown in the deep end right away as
3: an AUSA. Yeah, it's true. I I opened the book telling a story about the moments before my first ever opening of my first ever jury trial, which was a gun and robbery trial, which for federal cases is, is I guess, the the lower level stuff, um, and how... um, I walked into the trial room sort of full of, you know, fear but confidence as well. And my trial partner who had been, or I should say supervisor who'd been doing trials for a decade and and more just takes one look at me and goes, the hell are you wearing? Uh, because I was wearing a set of dress shoes without laces, which apparently was some unwritten code I was unaware of, and I sort of used that as a launching point. But throughout the book, I tell a lot of uh, what what we call war stories or trial stories about cases that I tried and lessons that I learned. Little ones like about the shoes, but much much bigger ones too. Um, and the reason is, A, I think it's entertaining. I think people love to see what happens, you know, what's it like in a trial room when a prosecutor's waiting for a verdict, or what happens when you have a witness who's having a breakdown or that kind of thing. But also because what I did in the book is illustrate certain core principles of being a prosecutor, what I call the prosecutor's code, basic fundamental ideas that are so important and that Bill Barr shattered. And for each of them, I apply what, I apply them to one of the many scandals that Bill Barr perpetrated and explain how he broke that code.
1: I agree 100%. We will get to that. But that first chapter ends with you asking your supervisor, because you got a split verdict, not guilty on one count, guilty on another. And you said, hey, was that a victory? And he had some vague answer. And I'll tell you, in the Denver DA's office, we had a completely different analysis, because we had to figure out who was winning and who was losing, just for our egos and whatnot, and doesn't it come down to whether you beat the offer, right? Right. And and so I wondered, so, in that case, did you beat the offer to that guy? I mean, had you if, would you have been glad if he would have pled guilty to one and you would have dismissed the other?
3: Well, let me say this. So so the the point that I'm making with that anecdote, we got a split verdict, like you said, the jury found him guilty on one count, not guilty on another. And I was, it was my first trial, and I didn't know what to make of it. And so in the elevator back uh, to our trial area afterwards, I, I turned to my supervisor and said, what, what was that? Was that a win or a loss? And I, I do want to take issue. He, he didn't give me a vague answer. He gave me what I consider to be a wise answer. I didn't fully understand at the time, but I understood later. He said, this isn't about wins and losses. This is not the NFL. You don't, keep, you know, you don't have a personal record. He said, this is about something bigger. He, he basically told me, that's not how we look at things here. Um, so he said, you know, it's about being part of a, a system and a process that's bigger than you. But sometimes it, it goes the right way or your way, and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it goes against you, and that's the right way. So um, I'm paraphrasing here, and that, but I think that's an important lesson that I tried to draw out. In in that particular case, did we, quote-unquote, beat the offer? Sure. I mean, he ended up getting a fairly stiff sentence. But um, eventually, I you know, I don't want to be overly... Um, Pollyanna-ish about it or overly idealistic about it, yes, it does feel like winning and losing, and there aren't many professions where at the end of whatever you do, somebody says you win and you lose, Um, and and that's one of the interesting things about being a prosecutor. And it's
1: such a great job because we're charged with doing justice, and I'm sure you wouldn't prosecute somebody for a crime unless you are convinced beyond a reasonable doubt and then persuades a handsome guy that you are. Ellie Honig (laughs) thinks... I should be able to convey what I believe to these twelve people based on the evidence, and they should agree with me. And if they don't, that's disappointing.
3: Yeah, I mean, look, you're right. There's inevitably there's an an element of ego in there because it, it's. In, it, I used to say it's kind of like being a boxer, right? I mean, you train for this, you prepare for it for months, and you go in, and again. Other than being a boxer or a fighter of some sort, or being a trial lawyer, I can't think of too many professions where, when you're done, someone goes, "This side wins, this side loses." Right? I mean, other professions have their ups and downs, but they're not quite as zero sum and and definitive as that. And yeah, when when you lose, and I talk in the in the book about a couple of things that I lost or I was disappointed in, um, it does hurt. But you do learn in time, and I I, I, I assume you had the same experience. You get a thicker skin, and you do accept that. it's It's really not about you or your ego. That's part of it. I mean, but but that's not that that's about the four thousandth most important thing after many, many others. So it's one of the things that um, you learn as you grow and mature as a prosecutor.
1: Correct. And you've got an East Coast style. Will you accept that? Here I am in Colorado and fourth generation. <laughs> proud of it. But I have to believe you're an aggressive guy and you prove it in your book by titling it hatchet man i think you're right about bill barr i think you nail him with the truth and i love it but to call somebody a liar which you do right away you know in colorado courts we're not allowed to call people a liar it's considered vouching and that sort of thing i don't know if that's true in new jersey or new york but tell us why you decided to go that far
3: yeah, so a couple things. First of all, the title, Hatchet Man. You're right; it's a it's a very aggressive title. But I do think it's important to say this, and I and I put this in the book. I initially gave Bill Barr the benefit of the doubt. I happened to be on air on CNN when his name was first announced, and I was asked about him, and I knew who he was because he had been AG before. It was a long time ago, but I did research and I sort of you know brushed up on him, and I said something like, I had I asked a producer. She actually pulled the clip so I could quote myself. I said something like, look, he's serious. He has done the job before. He is experienced, and he seems like a strong pick. And and I think that's important because I and others who I quote in the book who had been generally critical of the Trump administration gave him the benefit of the doubt. I was not looking to write a book about this guy by any means. Um, He then spent two years sort of um, undoing that very quickly. Yeah, the decision to call him a liar, I thought really hard about that because it is longstanding practice tradition, maybe even rule. I don't, I don't know. I've never heard of such a rule, but i don't, um here in New York and New Jersey, but you just don't call someone a liar in court. Um, you know, there've been plenty of times I've stood in front of a jury and said, when this witness testified X, you should throw that out or that was a lie, but that you should disbelieve that. Or you can say that was a lie, but to call someone a liar is different. And I thought long and hard about that. Now, obviously I'm not, Practicing in court here. I'm writing a book, but I take the obligation the same to be exactly on point and correct. And, you know, you don't have to take it from me because many, many other, you know, multiple federal judges appointed to the bench by presidents of both parties, Robert Mueller, um, and many, many others have said that Bill Barr was. And pretty much if you go into Google and you type in synonym for liar, Every one of them has been said on record by a federal judge, dishonest, disingenuous, inconsistent with facts, not credible, lacked candor, all of that. So, look, I'm writing a book. It's in my voice. And I am comfortable calling him that. He lied to us many, many times about issues, big and small. And guess what? If you lie a lot over and over, you're a liar. I love it.
1: You don't pull your punches. And in retrospect, (laughs) a lot of us made that mistake. I was on Trump radio at the time. And I said, thank goodness we have an adult in the room because he was replacing Matt Whitaker. And you have a
0: yeah.
1: great uh, pages about that guy. But we were fatigued <laughs> with, the, with the idea that the AG was going to be an income poop like that guy. At least Bill Barr had a distinguished career. But, you know, we're giving ourselves a pass. We could have investigated further. And there was a lot to see, including the fact that he auditioned for the job and he has uh, religious motivations and he, he really, when you look back on the pardoning of uh, Weinberger, that wasn't kosher.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the indicators were there, you know, and I do say in fairness to myself, I praised him on day one, but pretty quickly, I think it was a day or two later, this audition memo emerged, which made very clear that, so that what, what we mean by this is, About six months before he became AG, Bill Barr went out on his own. No one asked him, unsolicited, and wrote this 20-page memo, very detailed, that he sent into the Justice Department You know, under the guise of, oh, I'm just sharing my thoughts. But really, he was obviously trying to catch Trump's eye. Um, He denies it, but of course, he was doing media as well. Why would you do media if you were just trying to quietly share your thoughts? and in the memo Barr concludes that Robert Mueller's investigation which was then in its in its heyday was quote fatally misconceived fatally meaning dead and sure enough that memo made its way or the gist of it made its way to Donald Trump he liked what he saw he was desperately searching for his fixer he was you know still furious that Jeff Sessions had recused himself taken himself off that investigation and here comes Bill Barr saying the exact thing that Donald Trump wants to hear and Donald Trump not- notices it and goes there's my guy and then Bill Barr proceeds to do exactly what he told us he was going to do. He proceeds to lie to us, distort the Mueller report, manipulate the release of it, um, which I can get into. But um, yeah, I think there were very serious red flags. And in fact, by the time his confirmation hearing came out, he only, got a, he only got through because the Republicans had to send a majority. It was essentially a straight line, party line vote that got him through.
1: And that pattern was set throughout the Trump administration, probably throughout his life. If he can find a lawyer who will praise him and do his bidding, he'll pluck them from obscurity like Jenna Ellis out of Colorado, who I know all too well. Let's talk about (laughs) another lawyer who I never met in person, but you must have at CNN, Michael Avenatti. I know it's not much in your book, but you must have thoughts about it. He's on trial again I, right now.
3: Yeah, I've never met Michael Avenatti. I guess I started doing CNN. No, I guess I've started doing CNN after he uh, after he was off the off the media scene. What an improvement um, yeah, you well,
1: are over him! But have you ever
3: seen well, such a uh, I don't think that's apples for apples. He was not doing analysis. He was there in his capacity as someone, you know, as a lawyer, a newsmaker. He was maker, doing everything. He had as much
1: airtime as you are getting lately, maybe even more. <laughs> So Michael Avenatti
3: obviously was um, was charged with several crimes. He was convicted in my old office or by my old office, the Southern District of New York, of this really pretty audacious um, extortion scheme where he tried to shake down Nike I mean you know the Nike that we all know for twenty five million dollars. I believe now Nike was smart enough to, n- to not be intimidated by him and they never paid him anything. but he was sentenced to a couple of years oh, gosh I'm blanking on the sentence, but I think it was about two or three years on right. that the BIP- but he still has two more federal cases for worse conduct than that for ripping off his own clients, including people who did not have a lot of means or obviously, you know, you trust your lawyer. And that is just, you know, if proven, that is just absolutely despicable conduct. So we've got one trial in in California, one trial back in New York. Um, if he gets convicted, that's only going to lead to him getting more time in jail. But gosh, I mean, if you steal from your clients, that is that is about as low as it gets for a lawyer.
1: I have not had a media career like yours because yours is meteoric. But back in the day <laughs> when I was younger, good looking like you, I was sort of on my ass after my 16 years as a prosecutor. I'd run against Bill Ritter, who went on not only to BDA, but Colorado governor. We're back to being good friends. Right. But Champagne Ramsey got killed, and I got called on because I had done a lot of big cases in my career, and that was Mm -hmm. sort of a cottage industry. How did it happen that you, Ellie Honig, out of all the Uh, lawyers in the world, how did you break through in the media the way you have so
3: spectacularly? Thank you for that. Um, It was not at all by design. So I finished up my 14 and change years, 14 and a half years as a prosecutor in the middle of 2018. And, again, this is when the mother report was just full blast. And friends of mine from the Southern District of New York had started doing the CNN-MSNBC um, circuit, one of whom, in particular, Mimi Roca, you may know who that is, sure. um, had signed with MSNBC. And she said – you know, she was my supervisor um, at the Southern District in the organized crime unit – and you know remained a good friend and a mentor of mine and she said would you be interested in doing this i think you'd be good at it and i said sure i I had started teaching at rutgers university our state university here in new jersey i thought yeah you know that'll go nicely with what i'm doing here because you know we should have public visibility on important issues and i started going up and doing it and then it just you know one show called me up and then another one and it just sort of built from there but this was never my plan that said i i mean i love it i i hope that comes through in my work on air and in my writing, but I just find it fascinating to cover this range of legal issues and to try to boil down what are complex concepts for a very intelligent but not lawyer, not not necessarily legal audience. And really, as you'll understand, it's similar to making an argument to a jury. Especially,
0: attention. yeah, you yep. were
1: standing up there with John yep. Berman and you had the technology. You had about three yep. minutes to explain three and a half minutes. Yeah, that was it. was <laughs> tremendous. Yep. And check it out on Twitter. That's how I found it. You've got thank you. It's you've on got CNN, a it's huge amount well. of Twitter
3: followers. How important is that to you now? Twitter is something that I had been on for about five or six years before I ever tweeted anything. Because I would use it solely, basically, to follow sports to get like injury updates on you know fantasy football and stuff. Um, and then when I started doing media, I started sort of trepidatiously doing you know tweeting my thoughts. And um, look, I I am a fan of Twitter. I mean, are there trolls on there? Sure. Is there negativity? Sure. Is there irrationality? Sure. But there's an awful lot of good. I learn a lot. It, it enables me. You know, I try to tweet things that are either occasionally just fun, but but that are just sort of Explanatory more than opinion. Um, Here's how this works, folks, or this is common what you're seeing here, or this is very uncommon what you're seeing there. Um, And I'll tell you a little story. I got my book offer, my offer from HarperCollins to do my book purely through Twitter. They, I I, to this day don't have a book agent. Um, They, one of their editors, executive editors who's responsible for content development, had seen me on TV and he did direct messaged me through Twitter. I put this in the acknowledgments of my book, a 17-word uh, message that basically said, would you be interested in writing a book about DOJ? I see you on air. I think you have something interesting to say. I'm paraphrasing. So uh, if nothing else, I, I will credit Twitter for allowing me to connect with my publisher, which enabled me to write, write my book. Um, but yeah, I think Twitter can be infuriating, but um, by and large, I think it, it's a, it, it can be a force for good and for education. Let's go back to
1: Bill Barr. There's big emphasis yeah. in Colorado, probably in the other states as well, for professionalism, courtesy. Yep. Yeah. And yet, you're a lawyer. Bill Barr is a lawyer. We've already talked about you being pretty harsh on him. And I did the same thing in Jean-Benet Ramsey. I saw that the Boulder DA, Alex Hunter, was making a lot of mistakes. And don't you mm-hmm. think that's part of the appeal, why Harper Collins reached out to you and why Uh, shows wanted to book me back in the day, it's because you had one prosecutor willing to say, hey, this prosecutor is doing some screwy things.
3: Yeah, I think that goes to your, your sort of credentials and credibility. And I think because I was able to say, look, I was a prosecutor for 14 years. And one of the points I make in the book is that Bill Barr, although he was attorney general of the United States twice, in fact, one of only two people ever to do that, the other was back in the 1840s and 50s, The man never tried a case um, as a prosecutor, nor did any of the top people around him. They were all sort of career, either private lawyers or or more high-ranking bureaucratic types. Um, And I think that really hampered Bill Barr's ability to do the job in ways that I point out in the book. He never learned those lessons. He never sort of had to um, absorb those valuable principles and ideas that you and I learned from doing trials on the front lines. And I think that As a result, he either didn't understand or maybe didn't care about those values. Really basic, and it's nothing complex. I'm just talking about basic values like you don't lie. You don't fudge the truth. You don't go in with you and have your facts all wrong. You don't ever play politics. If you do mess something up, you acknowledge it and you fix it. Um, If you have a conflict of interest, if you've expressed an opinion on the case, like the Mueller case, you recuse yourself, meaning you take yourself off that case. So all those things are things that you learned probably at a very early stage of your prosecutorial career, and I did too, and were sort of embedded in me. But he never did, and he never cared about them. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he was such a destructive and corrupt attorney general.
1: You can figure out that Ellie Honig was an incredible prosecutor in SDNY, and you went after the mafia. That took a lot of balls right there. And that's (laughs) another reason why you're on CNN. But boy, you guys... Seem to have a different process. First of all, in the Denver DA's office, I occasionally heard shoe remarks, but to me, you got to be comfortable in your shoes if you're on your feet. But you guys with that moots, as you called it, where you'd have <laughs> to give your opening and closing to all your colleagues, and they'd rip it apart, and I'm thinking, when did you have time? I mean, I'm not really finishing my closing until about 3 a.m. the day I'm giving it, because...
3: Yeah, I don't so that's, care how much you a, prepare, the trial changes things. Yeah, so that's a great question. It's one of the, and I've been both federal and state prosecutor. As a state prosecutor, I wasn't really sort of on the front lines because that was later in my career. I was a supervisor for, I was in charge of the Division of Criminal Justice in New Jersey. So I was running a 500 plus person shop. So I wasn't really on the front lines. But the, one of the biggest differences between being a federal and a state prosecutor is just caseload and volume and pace. As a state prosecutor, you are just getting cases dropped on you daily, and you're just churning, you know, you're, you're sprinting on a treadmill. As a Fed, and I joke with my friends um, who are Feds, I said, Boy, you guys live in a bubble. I mean, you get to pace your own case for the most part. You know, you, could, you don't have the same volume of cases, cases move more slowly. You know, you, you would try a, a busy trial lawyer when I was a Fed would try two or three cases a year. That was a lot. You know, state prosecutors try 10, 20, 30 a year. So we had the luxury of being able to prepare and be more deliberate. And I do write in the book about this moot process, which was horrible. You had to stand in front of a whole bunch of your colleagues and give, essentially, a rehearsal of your opening and your closing, and then they rip it apart. It's like, American, like that be your worst episode of American Idol. Um, and I talked about how that was sort of the learning and growing process um, of being a prosecutor.
1: Michael Bailey, a friend a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life.
0: So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's it's like the, the smooth transition of power.
1: That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have? There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days?
0: best way uh, you can give me a call my phone number is 720-394-6887 and again that's 720-394-6887 or you can go online to Michael Law michaeldailylawllc.com and there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use so either way is fine
1: thanks michael Wow, you bring up so many interesting issues about pacing a case. I hope that's what Merrick Garland is doing right now, because I'm disappointed with uh, his lack of action or apparent action. Maybe something is churning underneath. By the way, Merrick Garland was the chief DOJ supervising prosecutor of the Oklahoma City bombing case, which was tried where, Ellie? Do you remember, or were you a kid then?
3: Where, so the Oklahoma City
1: bombing trial was tr- not tried in Oklahoma City? No, it was tried in Denver, no, I don't Colorado. Know that. It was moved to Denver. Oh, well, very rare, but wow, Oklahoma because, uh, because City the, was the, so affected, yeah. and there was an agreement. So yeah. I got to be a media wow. reporter on that incredible occasion. So I had a lot of respect oh, for Eric Garland. Yes, I was there yep. when Beth Wilkinson met David Gregory. Yep. How about that? That was uh, in Denver, uh, Colorado, yeah. when she was prosecuted. Oh, good, good fact. So the, so there you go. But back to Merrick Garland. Is he yeah. casing the case or what's going on behind the scenes?
3: So are you talking about the January 6th cases? Yeah, I'm or are you talking, talking about, about them all. Yeah. I'm
1: talking about the tax fraud, yeah. the Michael Cohen stuff, even Stormy yeah. Daniels. I'd bring that back, individual one. He's got so much well, to do, and he's not doing anything that I can see.
3: all. All public, there are things Merrick Garland has done, I think, that are good and that deserve praise. However, when it comes to any Trump-related investigation, there is zero sign that Merrick Garland has any interest or intent to go after Donald Trump for anything criminal, whether it's hush money payments, whether it's obstruction of Mueller, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's January 6th. And I've been very critical and I'll remain very critical of Merrick Garland for that. It appears to me that Merrick Garland's modus operandi is Consider an action. Ask, will this be perceived as a shot at Donald Trump or Bill Barr or the prior administration? If so, don't do it. And I think that's a badly flawed way to go about things because by bending over backwards to avoid anything that might be difficult or politically turbulent, hey, you're not doing your job as a prosecutor, b) you really kind of are playing politics by, by you know bending yourself to stay out of politics? So, um, I really object to that. I don't know how Merrick Garland is going to justify not even meaningfully investigating all these things. Yes, I understand it's extraordinarily difficult to to investigate and potentially charge a former president. I understand there's some gray areas on some of these things with the law. But to, to, to try to, to adopt an approach of, let me just sort of put my hands in my pockets and whistle and stroll by and hope nobody notices to me, is just not doing your job. It's timid. Um, And it's not what prosecutors do. Merrick Garland, by the way, unlike Bill Barr, was a real prosecutor. He talked about Oklahoma City. It doesn't get any bigger than that in terms of of cases. So I'm uh, I'm not impressed at all by the approach that he's taken to Donald Trump. And the same thing um, applies to the January 6th cases. They are taking the easiest path with all of these folks. Nobody's been charged with sedition, even though the sedition law obviously applies. And by the way, people may be thinking, well, sedition's kind of dramatic. It means overthrowing the republic, that kind of thing. It does mean that. There's an argument that's what they were trying to do. But it also means interfering with any governmental function, such as counting the electoral votes on January 6th. It also means taking over any governmental building without permission by force, which is exactly what they did at the U.S. Capitol that day. So, But Garland seems to be shying away from those charges because they're politically sensitive. So in that respect, I I don't think he's doing his job.
1: What the hell?
3: What about your old
1: stomping grounds, the sovereign district of New York? Will they do anything or are they constrained by their boss, Merrick Garland? Well, the, so the
3: SDNY is famously independent, and I write about this in the book, what makes them independent. And one of those is that they're, they are you know, look, are they part of the Justice Department? Of course. Do they have to listen to the Attorney General? Of course. But there are all sorts of other factors that enable the SDNY to do things, you know, regardless of, of what the AG wants to happen. Um, I think the SDNY is absolutely going to be aggressive and, and, and do what it needs to do with respect to Rudy Giuliani. And I, we don't know yet if there's enough to charge him there. There are indicators that there could be, indicators that um, they may have some gaps they need to bridge. Um, when it comes to Trump, I, I same thing. I mean, I, I'm not seeing any indication that they're investigating Trump, that they intend to finish out their hush money investigation, um, or that they're going to be doing anything really different from what I said before. So look, there's a new US attorney who will be taking over at some point in the upcoming months. It, it'll be Joe Biden's nominee, um, who's a young man named Damian Williams, who, um, who I knew um, and, and think very, very highly of. Um, I think he's spectacularly talented and a good person, and he's going to have some really difficult decisions to make.
1: And you only touch on it briefly in your book, but you said, "Wow, that guy Rudy Giuliani." When you worked there, you must have admired him, probably growing up as well. And and I did. I thought his politics were good. You know, he he was pro gun control, pro choice. (laughs) He was uh, a Republican, and some of his tough on crime thing worked. I admired Rudy Giuliani. I just can't believe how far he's fallen. What about you? Yeah,
3: I, I admired Rudy, not so much as a politician, but but as a prosecutor. Um, I mean, look, Rudy was the lead mob prosecutor in the SDNY in the 80s, and he did great work against the mob, I and mean, groundbreaking work. I became the chief of the organized crime unit three decades later, I guess, or two and a half decades later. Um, and so I, I sort of, in a way, am in that lineage— when I started working at the SDNY, it was early 2004. So you're not that far removed from 9/11 at this point. And Rudy was someone we were intensely proud of in that office. Um, you know, we would I would brag to friends when I would took this new job. They, you know, people don't always understand the difference between an AG and a DA and a U.S. Attorney. They would go, "Which what's that? Is that?" I would say, "Oh, that's Rudy Giuliani used to run that office." That was the first name I would say, and they would go, "Oh, okay, all right." Now, <laughs> boy. The man is just an utter fraud. He is a vicious, dangerous conspiracy theorist. He is a liar. I mean, I'm far from alone in saying that judges have now found that. Um, and he is power hungry, and he has just turned himself into an utter disgrace. And, and, and his legal problems are um, are many and still ahead of him, whether it's the lawsuits by the voting companies who, who, who um, allege that he defamed them, and he seems pretty clearly to have done that. Um, we know that he is now at least temporarily lost his law license, which is kind of hard to do, but, uh, a panel of judges in New York have found that he, um, he was just outright dishonest in his wild statements about election fraud. And he's got the pending criminal investigation, the biggest worry uh, by his old office, the SDM line. I understand why you
1: don't say, yeah, that's Rudy's old office. You left off some big moments yeah. in Rudy's life. Of course, Borat, that was really something, but... The memorable moment, because I know Jenna Ellis, is when he farted next to her. In fact, I think they put it on Saturday Night Live. You ripped Jenna Ellis a little bit as one of the team of foolish lawyers. I mean, you commented on CNN throughout this. Could you believe the quality of lawyering rendered by Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis?
3: I I want people to understand this. I know that lawyer, there's a lot of lawyer jokes out there and you know, people joke about lawyers are sort of you know, dishonest or fudge the truth or whatever. The, the lawyering, and, and I, let's put scare quotes around lawyering, the performance that you saw from Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis to challenge this election was utter buffoonery, outrageous, ridiculous. It is nothing like what good lawyers do what average lawyers do or what mediocre lawyers do. It was something else entirely and altogether. They spewed out nonsense propaganda. They actually avoided signing their names on a lot of this junk. They did sign their names on some stuff. They made bold predictions about the great wins they'd have. They lost in virtu- at virtually every turn, state judges, federal judges, Republican, Democrat judges. They made absolute fools of themselves and, and really the entire profession. And um, it shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be able to live it down because should it's they really lose disgraceful. Their, should they lose their law licenses? Of course. Rudy Giuliani already has had his suspended, right. and I think that opinion is very well supported. They go through and they just debunk his nonsense, and to the extent Jenna Ellis, I can't keep keep straight which, one she, which lawsuit she signed on to and which ones she managed to keep her name off of, but if she... Uh, signed on to similar lawsuits, making the same outrageous election fraud claims that she's made many times publicly. Then, yeah, same thing for her.
1: A lot of people ask me who killed Jean Binet. I have my theories, but it's not like I was there. But you were at SDNY and Jeff Epstein. What happened to Jeff Epstein? How, how did that death occur?
0: Yeah,
3: I mean, look, I I don't want to go too too far down the speculative road here. I mean, the the, the you know one of the all autopsies concluded that it was suicide. I know some people do not believe that it was suicide. I'll just say this: I've, I've actually been on that unit where Epstein was, where when he was killed, because um, you know when you're a prosecutor, you spend some time in the jails for various reasons. Um, there, the fact that there's not videotape of the hallway outside, so you can at least see who's going in and out, um, is is a problem to me. Um, there normally you would not necessarily have videotape inside the cell. Prisoners are entitled to certain privacy, but you would have, and I believe I believe the Bureau of Prisons um, represented in court, if I'm remembering right, that ordinarily there is video footage of that area outside of the cell, but they didn't have it or couldn't find it or something. That that bothers me um, looking at this, and uh, I don't you know I, I don't think that people will, I think people who believe one thing will never be satisfied of the other.
1: Well, does Ghislaine Maxwell kids really go to trial?
3: I don't know. I mean, you know, I thought she was going to flip for a little while just because I didn't think she could hack it in prison, but she's been in there for, gosh, a year or maybe more now. Um, and I've been in that prison that she's in. It's brutal. I mean, they're all brutal, but this one's brutal, brutal. Um, she's going to, if she gets convicted, I mean, the evidence against her looks very strong. If she gets convicted, she's going to go away for a mandatory minimum of 10 years. I don't know her age off the top of my head. I think she's at least 60. So I don't see where she's aiming here. There's no indication that she's cooperating. I mean, if she goes to trial, I think the the, the probability of her getting convicted is very high. And if that happens, she's going to get a very a deadly serious sentence here. So um, let's see. Let's see what happens. But, um, you know... If she's going to go to trial, that's a major roll of the
1: dice. It is. And if she gets put away, at least she can say she sowed her wild oats when she had her freedom. Wow, what a life she led. (laughs) Let me—you spell out so many atrocities by Bill Barr. And, you know, the Ukraine impeachment, he could have been involved there. An honest AG would have said, what the hell, and brought charges January 6th and all of that. But the thing I'll never forget— is his role in clearing out Lafayette Park. You have a beautiful chapter on that. Have you ever seen anything more outrageous? And why wasn't that pursued? Why isn't it pursued now?
3: Well, so the Lafayette Park thing, of course, is when there were protesters uh, protesting police violence outside the White House. And, you know, here, the sequence essentially is Bill Barr goes to the White House. Bill Barr stands on the White House lawn um, says to one of the uh, commanding officers, "Hey, are these folks still gonna? These people still gonna be here when the president comes out in a few minutes?" Then the park is violently cleared, and then Donald Trump, we all remember, strolled over to the church and held up a Bible. And Bill Barr actually walked with him. Um, some people, though, who defend Trump or Barr, have claimed that they've now been exonerated on that because a Department of, I think, the Interior report came out saying, "Oh, it was actually not connected. The clearing of the park was actually not connected." To the photo op, to which I say, first of all, and their, 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 their explanation is, no, this was actually pre-planned construction on fences. Um, I call BS on that. I don't accept that for the following reasons. One, who's ever heard of a construction project that starts at 7 p.m. at night? Two, are we just supposed to believe this is a massive coincidence, right, that they just happen to clear the park, oh, and then the president just happens to walk to the church? Three, um, They, This Department of the Interior didn't speak with anyone at DOJ or the White House, so they had almost no visibility into what actually happened. It would be the equivalent of, if I were to investigate whether A and B were connected, but I didn't speak with A or B, how would I really know that? And finally, even if you take this report at face value, it absolutely does implicate Barr, because it says Barr went out to the front lawn or the lawn of the White House and said, are these people still going to be here when the president comes out? And then they're immediately cleared out. Um, so that's a direct connection. That, that is an episode, I think, one of many that should remain a shame for, for Bill Barr.
1: Right. And that's why your title is so perfect. He was Trump's hatchet man on that operation. And you you were such a major law enforcer, especially your big job in New Jersey. My God, the people you supervised. One thing that concerns me is a lot of people who carry badges like I used to. They are in the Trump camp. He kind of made it us versus them, and the Democrats played in the, into their hands. And a lot of them don't see the criminality of Donald Trump. People who would you know, investigate a burglary or an armed robbery, they would never care about the politics of the person, just whether the evidence was there. That's all I'm asking for people to do with Donald Trump. See the obvious criminality. Hold him accountable just like any other person and I sense you feel the same way. And could you comment on the role of police officers? Do you think too many of them have been hoodwinked by Donald Trump?
3: That's an interesting question. I think there are people who draw distinctions in their mind between criminality on one hand and criminality committed by Donald Trump on the other. Why they do that, I can't, I just, I can't psychoanalyze. I mean, they're it's bizarre and it's inconsistent, as you know. I mean, if you are in favor of law enforcement and people being um, you know, experiencing consequences for their criminal actions, then fine. But I don't know how you can have those positions except with respect to one person. Um, I think people who see Donald Trump a lot of times, a lot of the excuses that get made for him are like, well, he was just, he was just the president. He has this constitutional imperative. But not for some of the things he did. Not for, for example, order. You know, I'll give you an example with the Mueller report. A lot of the things he did: firing Jim Coney, trying to fire uh, at, at certain points Robert Mueller, offering pardons. You know, dangling pardons, as we say. People say Bill Barr basically, essentially argued, well, that's a constitutional imperative of the president. And my response is: even if you accept that, he still did plenty of other things to obstruct the Mueller report. For example. He told Don McGahn, his own lawyer, to create a false document. He told Don McGahn to lie. That's there's no constitutional imperative there. So people like, you know, buy into these um sort of overarching excuses for Donald Trump, but they really don't stand up.
1: And how can your old unit indict and convict Michael Cohen for the Stormy Daniels situation and leave individual one alone when everybody knows? that Donald Trump was the guy who, you know, was with Stormy in Nevada and paid her 130 I mean, it's, it's just, yeah. to me, it's corrosive of the rule of law. But the biggest corrosive thing, and I'd like to end the interview with this, Donald Trump is an ongoing danger. He still has control of the GOP, and he's still pushing this big lie. How dangerous is it? And remind people how Bill Barr, before he jumped off this ship... Set and sail the big lie.
3: So the big lie is absolutely very much an ongoing threat, and, and anyone who thinks we've heard the last of the big lie or January six or this denialism um, is, is kidding themselves. Um, it will continue to be a threat, not just to our to our sort of voting rights, but people who are are sort of weaponized to act on this. We saw it on January six. We've seen arrests since then of people who are trying to follow up. And um, it it is very much a continuing threat. We're learning more and more now about Donald Trump's attempts to weaponize DOJ um, to pull off a coup. And so, no, this story is far from over. Bill Barr had this interesting sort of turn at the end on December 1st of 2020, so three and a half weeks after the election. Bill Barr came out and publicly said, we've not found any systemic evidence of election fraud. And that was a a blow to Donald Trump and to his whole election fraud Conspiracy theory. However, and and I put that in my book, of course, because Bill Barr did that and it's important. Bill Barr is is on a serious image rehab tour right now, though, because he's out there doing these softball interviews, reminding everybody that he did that. But what he's leaving out is that he spent the six months leading up to the election standing those flames. He was one of the biggest cheerleaders behind Donald Trump's whole election fraud theory. Bill Barr went on national radio, he went on national TV. He went in front of Congress, and he repeated those lies over and over. He said, we're going to have this mass threat of, of counterfeit ballots, and foreigners are going to infiltrate our election, and there's nothing we can do about it. And every time he was asked, what proof do you have of that? His answer was always none, but it's just something I know, or none, but it's common sense. Or once in a while, in one incident, he offered up this case from Texas involving 1,700 ballots. It turned out that was— False. It was actually a case involving one ballot and DOJ had to correct it and walk it back the next day. So let's get the whole picture here, right? Bill Barr did did he did he stand up against Donald Trump at the at the end? Yes. Did he, however, do the exact opposite and fan the flames for many months before that? Yes. And I should note, even after Bill Barr had his brief moment of bravery on December 1st, he then sent in this really um, fawning resignation letter a few weeks later where he actually undermines himself because he says, oh, Mr. President, it was an honor to brief you just now on the fact that our fraud cases are continuing and they're ongoing. So he sort of undid his own brief principled stance. But let's get the full picture. Don't buy Bill Barr's totally slanted, self-serving PR tour that he's on right now. Right. But
1: I don't know why Bill Barr did it. Maybe it was his animus toward Rudy Giuliani toward the end. And your book does a good job on that. But thank God he did it because you alluded to it. We are just finding out from Richard Donahue's notes and finding out this doofus Jeff Clark was going to be possibly the new acting AG. Just think if Bill Barr would have done all the bidding of Donald Trump toward the end, how bad it could have gotten.
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think the reason Bill Barr sort of turned in, at one point in December and then left um, is because he, he's a, he's rational. Unlike Rudy Giuliani, who is sort of a true believer and a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist, Bill Barr was smart enough to know it was over in, on December 1. They were not going to win in courts. They had lost the election, and there was just all these wild theories. Mike Pence can change the election results. Bill Barr was smart enough to, to know that those were going nowhere. And so I think it was a very... Rational, self-interested things for him to do to say, "Okay, I'm not going down with these movies. I'm going to separate myself. I'm going to try to salvage some bit of my reputation and and get away from this stuff." And look, there were, Bill Barr did have a line, I guess, somewhere of something he wouldn't do. Um, You know, that's not to say that's not to say his line was anywhere near the right place, but he did have a line. Ultimately, I mean, he wasn't willing to go out and indict Barack Obama or, or indict. Joe Biden and Donald Trump wanted him to do. So um, I think there was a combination of he got pushed to his limit, which was very, very far out. And he wanted to try to protect his own name for the future.
1: Right. And the one thing we know about Bill Barr is he's a religious dude. I was waiting in your book. Is he going to get yeah. to it? And eventually you do. And I don't know if you know Charles Chaput, who became Archbishop no, in Philadelphia, but he was in Denver for many years before that. And He's very conservative, and he came to Bill Barr's defense when Bill Barr was criticized for being an honoree at a prayer breakfast. I don't know if you recall that, but ultimately you get to the religiosity of Bill Barr. And just to end our interview, please, with how you think that factored in, I'm so glad you put it in your book.
3: Yeah, and my, my criticism of Bill Barr is not at all the fact that he's a deeply religious person. That is fine. My criticism of Bill Barr is that he viewed his job as attorney general as needing to impose religiosity on our society, on our government. And we found in researching this book some things that Barr had written and said back in the 1990s that were over the top, extreme. At one point, he said that, "quote God's law is the only way." To organize a civil society, he said that um, Catholicism and Judeo Christian religion is the only true organizing principle for any government, for any society. He railed against, and, and I quote Bill Barr here, the homosexual agenda and militant secularists. And he blamed those things for the downfall of the family and mental health and violence. And um, he viewed it very much as a battlefield. At one point, he wrote, what is, I'm paraphrasing this, what is the church's strategy for retaking the ground that we have lost? And we need to, he says, reassemble the flock and, and take back over our public life. And I think people say, why? Why did he do it? Why would he, why would he go to such extremes? I think because he was driven by that really extremist view of our society, that, that religious extremist view of the way that we ought to structure our laws in our society.
1: I missed that class at hey, CU Law School. Uh, God's Law. What about at Rutgers? Do they have a God's Law class?
3: <laughs> that's a good question. I actually teach at the undergrad. I, I, I'm i not sure what they do at the, at the law school. At the undergrad, I, I just teach straight up prosecution and politics and, and intel, but uh, oh, cool. that's a good question. It wouldn't surprise me if we do. I mean, I think there, there, there's an interesting foundation in legal scholarship and academia that needs to be studied there, But but that's, that's very different from trying to impose that as attorney general of course
1: well I see why you are a top guy at CNN I wish you nothing but the best of luck <laughs> Ellie Hatchet Man is a great book I recommend it please buy it and we will follow you on Twitter and on CNN any place else we should be looking
3: uh Twitter CNN I have I have a podcast. Uh, new podcast coming in the fall. focused, I'll give a little tease here. Focused on my mob career as a, pro- not my mob career, my career as a mob prosecutor. Big difference. Um, so, yeah, you can check that out too. That's coming in September. It's, it's going to be called Up Against the Mob. So, check that out as well. Yeah, CNN, Twitter, my book, Catch It Man. i all over. Ellie, can't thank you
1: enough. Thanks for being in Craig's Thanks. Lawyers Lounge. You were terrific. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Bye now. All right. Let me tell you what we do and we don't do at Springer and Steinberg. We do almost everything. We do not do end-of-life planning. That's Michael Bailey. But for all your other legal needs, give me a call. 303-861-2800. 303-861-2800. I look forward to speaking with you. Michael Bailey, you've been a lawyer for a decade and a half. I have that beat because I'm a lot older, but you and I have something in common. Uh, We both pride ourselves on being good attorneys, and I've shared with you a little list I have, 20 ways to be a good lawyer. Do you want to go through a few of these right now, and we'll keep going on future talks. What about number one, behave yourself. What does that mean to
0: you? I mean, there's a whole slew of things that you can do as an attorney that are unbecoming or unseemly. You know, whether you break the ethical rules or if you just do things that are a little bit sneaky and underhanded, there's no need to do that. You do it the right way. You do it above board.
1: They need a steady, reliable person like you. Give out your contact information.
0: Sure. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. That's how you get a hold of me. I mean, my my website is michaelbaileylawllc.com. And again, that's michaelbaileylawllc.com. You can get a hold of me that way too.
1: If you want to keep following this story, then please subscribe on whatever podcast medium by which you acquire this sound, and then leave a positive review. More than anything, push the podcast to your friends. Let them listen. Thank you. Troubadour. Craig, how are you? Good. Did you miss me when I was in Texas? I did. How was the great state of Texas? It is there. Austin has a lot of similarities to Denver, except we don't have Confederate monuments on our state capitol grounds. But what a capital they have. Did you know that when it was built, I believe 1885, nine years before Denver's, it was the seventh tallest building in the world, and it's taller than the U.S. Capitol. Everything's got to be big in
4: Texas, right? Maybe even bigger. Yeah, it's is it still the, the tallest building in Texas?
1: No. Are you kidding me? No. It's, that was then. And now it's in 1,487th place. Okay. <laughs> Texas has grown up since you were there growing up. And the controversy survived, but I saw one of the all-time great musicians in the world, Willie Nelson. How about that?
4: I love seeing Willie.
1: He got up there and sang that song, Vote Them Out, Vote Them Out. You know what his opening song was? No. What would you think for a morning rally on the Texas State Capitol
4: steps? Oh, uh, Whiskey River.
1: It is. How'd you know that? (laughs) I (laughs) guess. I think that's an easy song for him to get into. And he hasn't played in public in a while because, you know, COVID. But he wasn't wearing a mask. Beto was, but not Willie.
4: Well, that's like the rest of the world.
1: Oh, he said, I'm double vaxxed. I feel safe. I got a lot of substances in me, and the guy is doing pretty good for age 88. Kenahora, He's doing something right, Greg. I know. It, but uh, my feeling is it's just a little touchy down there, and the homeless people, we have them here in Colorado, but they just seemed a little more aggressive, and I don't know how to react to homeless people. I'm trying to learn you are all around Metro Denver. You've seen the pickup. What's going on, David, and what's
4: the right response? Are you talking about to the homeless? Yeah. Oh, Craig, I, I, I wish I had an answer. It's a tough deal. Um, You know, I have seen some of these, these um little tent cities that have sprung up here and there, and uh, sometimes they're cleared off by the city. And I don't know what the city does, you know, afterwards to try to settle these people. I don't know.
1: But this week, I'm going to release on YouTube. You realize we have a YouTube channel? I didn't. We do. Just YouTube. Put my name in. Put in the name of the show. We're all on YouTube, but most of it is just audio. And we have a great song. These hard times, apropos of this topic. But during the week, I'm going to post some interviews that I did with homeless people. Really, one homeless person on the street. She's set up at Broadway and Ellsworth.
4: And so did you just approach this? You saw this I woman and, and approached her and and asked to uh, do an interview.
1: Correct, because I've been driving that way home every day, and I see this woman laid out on the corner of Ellsworth and Broadway, which, for those of you who know Denver, that's the 0-100 block. Right. And she's right in the heart of town. She seemed you know to be comfortable there she's got a nice setup in a way like homeless people do but it's the location there's not a tent she has an umbrella and I just thought what's her backstory and I talked to her and it's fascinating and I'm going to not just be playing the sound next week I'm going to have the video so that's one case and You will be surprised because wouldn't you think the most people who are on the streets are down and out probably because of mental health issues or because of substance abuse or because of this or that. And this is not the case here.
4: Wow. So in other words, it's a choice that she made.
1: A bit of a choice. It's hard to evaluate, but she was super articulate very attractive 32-year-old woman, and it is a decision that she has made up till now. I know you think about these issues, Dave Gunders, because you wrote this song, These Hard Times. It's apropos of talking about homelessness.
4: Yeah. I mean, you know, for anyone who's who's had financial difficulties in their life, um, you realize sometimes how close we all are, like they say, there but for the grace of God, right? Um, we have a lot of a lot of things that we, you know, insulate ourselves, or we have a lot of ways to insulate ourselves from homelessness or from that kind of condition. And yet, sometimes I think it's not, it's not, it's a, it's a rel- relatively thin veneer, um, and we're all some, we're all somewhat vulnerable,
1: right? It's a bit of a morbid topic. Oh my God, homelessness, but. It doesn't have to be like with your song. I love it because it's sort of upbeat. Yeah, these are hard times, but we're going to get through it. And I'll tell you, when you watch us on YouTube, you'll see that Victoria, that's her name, she's upbeat. And she says it's going to be a rags-to-riches story. And just watch me. I'm thinking about my next move. And it could be great. And when you hear her, you realize that's possibility. This woman could get literally up off the deck and be successful in this world. So I think you'll be stunned by it. But back to your great song, These Hard Times, what brought it about for you to write about it? And now with the Delta variant, COVID, it's apropos of that as well.
4: It is. I had written it more in, uh, from a, a personal uh, experience of, of actually having been embezzled uh, in my business and um, from someone I had trusted. So it was, a, it, was, it was a tough go for me. It was something that I had to recover from, uh, and it took about three years to do so. And when I was alluded to, you know, the, 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 the feeling that sometimes, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not as safe as we think we are, that's, <laughs> that's what gave, uh, you know, gave me that experience.
1: It's fantastic, and it's pure Dave Gunders, although you're talking about heaven again. You're starting to get spiritual. A lot of your song's mentioning heaven, but you turn this dark topic into an upbeat song, and I love the backup singers, and toward the end, it gets downright rollicking.
4: Well, yeah that's uh, that's the that's the way to approach them you know look for the look, you know like your like your interviewee here who I'm lo- looking forward Victoria Victoria. Vic, uh, Victoria who I'm in you know looking forward to hearing but uh, it's great that she has you know she has uh, an optimistic view of the future
1: right that'll be this week we're going to release it midweek on YouTube so like us there sponsor us I mean not sponsor us share it with your friends if you want to sponsor that would be great. But this is the place where you get to hear the music by our troubadour, Dave Gunders. Without further ado, These Hard Times by Dave Gunders.
2: If I could walk in the company of angels, holding up my hand to some cherry, swinging low, chasing fall. a bit shy.
1: When you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call. 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you.
0: Now back to the Brad Silverman Show.
1: Now that was a show. If I say so myself, remember if you need anything of a legal nature, I'm a good first call. 303-861-2800. Thank you to Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst. Our troubadour Dave Gunders, this upcoming week go to our youtube we are going to post some dynamic interviews from the heart of denver with very interesting women we will talk more about that next week and also about the late dick lamb with special guest dan grossman in craig's lawyers lounge you remember him former state rep youngest minority leader in colorado state history he's with the environmental defense fund now That's going to be a great interview. Thanks for your time today. Till next Saturday, have a great week.
0: Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.